So have you heard of the smartphone stack? Anybody heard of that? I'd never heard of it. I don't know who this is. John Dykstra ran across this article, found it kind of interesting. Um, I will explain it here. Uh, the smartphone stack from one of the publications he edits. Uh, you're out with some friends having a nice dinner, but one has been talking on his phone for the last 10 minutes, and a second is managing to fork food into our mouth while still using both hands to type text messages. And the fourth member of your party is preoccupied with tracking down some YouTube video he has to show everyone. That would be me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> So you're out with your friends for dinner, but it seems an awful lot like eating alone. We've all experienced something similar and put our friends through something similar. So how can we return a little decorum to our dinners out? One suggestion making the rounds is something called the phone stack. After everyone orders their meals, all smartphones are placed in the center of the table, one on top of another, face down. Throughout the course of the meal, it's simply a given that one of these or all are going to buzz, bing, or sing. But here's the kicker. No one is allowed to grab their phone until dinner and dessert is done. If someone feels they just have to pick up their phone, that's okay. But then they also have to pick up the check for the night. Oh. <laughs> Can there be exceptions? Maybe. Maybe someone is a doctor on call or a volunteer member of the local fire department and just needs to check their messages. Yep, allowances for that kind of thing can be made. But for the rest of the group, this is a fun way of ensuring we all connect with one another rather than with our devices. And for those dining in nights, a variation can be done involving who is going to do the dishes. So there you go. I thought that was pretty uh, interesting. And, you know, it kind of made me think then of this verse in Philippians chapter 2. Here's Paul in Philippians 2, do nothing, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And there's an interesting take on verse 3 in the literal standard version. It says, do nothing in rivalry or vainglory, but in humility of mind, counting one another more excellent than than yourselves there's a challenging verse right that literal translation makes it even like consider someone more excellent than yourself and the reality is when i look at this i think you know to some degree to do this it would take some deliberate application right there's like i gotta be really intentional to say how can i at times maybe uh, find someone more excellent than myself and what a world we would live in if according to romans 12 10 we all uh, tried to outdo one another in showing honor what a world right if you're around the, the table with six other people and i'm going to outdo everybody and show the other person more honor than they can show me what a contest or what a world we would live in and the beauty of the gospel is that it, it enables me to do that and it empowers me to do exactly that so a couple of questions to kind of set the table this morning here no pun intended there um, but the question is is there someone that you have a difficult time showing honor to is there someone in your life you just have a really hard time showing honor to this person could be a coworker, could be a boss could be could be a neighbor i don't know and, and how about this? Is there a specific relationship in your life that would benefit if you saw another person as more excellent than yourself? Is there a relationship? And the reality is, while this will benefit the other person, it'll benefit you as well. If you start looking at the people around you and saying, that person is more excellent than me, and I'll give them more honor than they can give me, it'll, it'll come back and be a blessing in your own life. Just know that, just be 
aware of that. Today's paradox, then, is the most amazing paradox in the Bible. The most amazing paradox in the Bible, and that, of course, is the Jesus or the God-man paradox. It's where we left off last week, right? So we left off last week saying, here's this amazing paradox, the shepherd became the lamb. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We disobeyed God, went our own way. So Jesus is the shepherd who became a lamb and didn't go astray and didn't go his own way and didn't do his own thing, but he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and that's right here in this Philippians 2 passage we're looking at today. And this is a most most amazing, amazing uh, paradox. It's hard to wrap our head around. Now, verse 5 is kind of like a hinge verse if we want to understand verses like 3 through 8 this morning. If we want to understand those, uh, here's the key. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's kind of like the hinge verse. And Here's what what I mean by when we think about this being a hinge verse verse Um, the reality is we just read those verses in three through five and three through five exhort us kind of they exhort us to actually yeah to show others as more excellent than ourselves to approach people in in, in an attitude of humility and honor but then five through eight kind of give us the deep theology behind what that looks like like, how do, I, how do I have this mindset of Christ? What does the mindset of Christ look like? Here it is, verses five through eight. Here's, here's what uh, Paul says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, a, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. If you are a new creation in Christ, you have the mind of Christ. You, you have his mind. You can think like he thinks. You got your old man brain, all your old memories, but you got the mind of Christ and you can think like Christ. And so verse five is like a hinge verse. Like what it is is like, these verses is the theology. Over here is how we practically live it out. Verses uh, really three and four are the two verses there that would do that. And so this is what we want to talk about today. Uh, we can put it this way. Uh, uh, the deep theology of verses six through eight teaches us how to implement the practical teaching of verses three and four. The deep theology of, of six and eight tells me how to find others more excellent than myself how to honor others, how to approach people in a spirit of humility. So what we have here then is this powerful, powerful, debatable, and mysterious paradox called the God-man. Jesus is the God-man. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us this, great indeed, we can confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's the mystery of godliness. This whole thing that Jesus became man, it's just a mystery to us. It's like, how do we wrap our head around something like this? And, and, and today, what I'm going to do today is kind of resolve the tension in three steps. But honestly, when you go home, it's going to be as much a mystery as when you came in. Because when you really consider what it looks like, yeah, it's a mystery. I, I, I can see what it looks like and how it works, but it's a mystery. Like, how did, how did God do that? Because God is God. It's going to be really fascinating to look at. We'll resolve the tension by letting us realize how much more of a mystery it really truly is. So we're describing here this issue that Jesus is the Son of God and he is the Son of Man. He is truly God and truly man. And as I said before, that generally we fall in one of two camps. You know churches today, they really, they really diminish the deity of God. 
Like they really water God down. They, they water Jesus down. They, they water down his deity. Other people struggle more and we kind of water down his humanity. It's like it's hard. I think most of us probably fall in this camp. It's harder for us to really resolve that Jesus was a human being and, and what does it mean that he's God but he's also uh, a man. And I think that's more challenging for us and we will consider that today. Uh, specifically in this message. Here's the, here's the big idea today. Um, oh, so yeah, some diminish his deity while others diminish his humanity. And that's the dangerous, really the dangerous tension of the God-man. We don't want to do that. We don't want to diminish either his deity or his humanity. We want to exalt them both and hold them in high esteem because they are so, we'll see why today it is so important we see Jesus as a man um, even as he is God. But here's our big idea today. Jesus lived my life so that I could live his. Jesus lived my life so that I could live his, and we will develop that. That will kind of flesh itself out through the sermon and become more and more clear. Uh, but here we go. Three steps this morning to, uh, to um, resolving the tension of the God-man. Three steps to resolve this tension. Here's the first one. Number one, at no point did Jesus ever stop being God. At no point did Jesus ever stop being God. We have to deal with that up front. Jesus is humanity and he is divinity, but when he took on humanity, he never stopped being divinity. Never, ever, ever. Now, the, the key of this, uh, to, to start to unpack this issue, is found in verse 7. Down there in verse 7, right? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And that's the key word there, uh, emptied himself. It's the Greek word kanao, kanao. And there's, there's a whole theory behind this kanao and what it means that he emptied himself. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, did I put this on the screen? I did. So Strong's, the Strong's Dictionary, uh, means this word means to make empty. And the Thayer's lexicon, he laid aside equality with or the form of God. And so what I want to make clear up front here is that he emptied himself, but he didn't empty himself of his divinity. And some teach that. Some say, well, when Jesus became a man, then he left behind his divinity and he was no longer divine. That's not, that is not what happened. And uh, we want to make sure you, you understand that up front. And I'll show today how that is clearly not the case. Now, when you think, though, of Jesus, really, when you think about this, 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 this idea of Jesus being the um <clears throat> being the god man you know one interesting place we can go to un to, to, to kind of see this is the virgin birth like we might i could ask you what was the purpose of the virgin birth and you might give me two or three reasons but i, I think this may be one of the most significant reasons for the virgin birth actually because when you think about it in the virgin birth uh you know um jesus is joseph is not jesus's biological father right? And so he has a heavenly father and he has an earthly mother. And there you have the son of God and the son of man coming together. He is truly God and he is truly man. He was born of the Holy Spirit, conceived uh, in the virgin birth, and he was conceived by a woman, by a human. And so in that sense, I think the virgin birth, we can see Jesus as the son of God and Jesus as the son of m m man. He has an earthly uh, dad and uh, he has a heavenly dad and an earthly Lee, mom. Interesting place to go there. But here's the thing. When you think about the God-man, you go to the scriptures and talk about the God-man, what you have is the Old Testament points to Jesus and says, when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, he is God. 
And we see this all throughout the Old Testament from Noah and Moses and David and Daniel and all of them, and they point to, but then in the New Testament, everything in the New Testament, like Paul writes and after the cross, they all point back and repeatedly say the one who came is God. That Jesus was God. And we see this, there's three areas where we can kind of highlight this, his divine names. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is given names that reflect he is God. Forty times he's called the Son of God. Uh, five times he is called the only begotten Son of God. He is called the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is called the, the Christ, who is God overall. He is called the Holy and Righteous One. He is called the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And he is called, uh, he calls himself seven times those, those famous I am statements in John. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Jesus repeatedly there said that, hey, I am God. Before Abraham was, I am. I am God. A lot of these titles, though, come after the cross. They, they come in Paul's writings and Peter's writings. And, and it's really fascinating that even then, they're saying, hey, the one who came, he was God. We also see it in the divine attributes. Jesus is God seen in his divine attributes. He is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He is eternal and immutable. He always has been, will always be, and will never change. Let me just give you one verse here for a moment on his attributes, kind of to, to rock your world this morning. Let me give you a verse that will just like, okay, wow. So look at this. Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus over here, and he's having a conversation, and Nicodemus isn't quite understanding the whole concept of being born again. Remember that? So Jesus says this to him, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. This is actually the New King James Version. I have a, a typo there. Um, that last line is actually not in some manuscripts. So in, in some Bibles, you'll just see it as a footnote, and they'll, they'll give you a little footnote and say, some manuscripts add this last line. But look at that last line. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Uh, that, and, and commentators agree this is a really difficult statement. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus saying, I, I come from heaven. Like I go up and down, I, I'm from heaven and actually I'm in heaven right now. It's like, wow, how, how does that work? Because he's omnipresent. And so Jesus is omnipresent. And, and understand what he says here. He says the son of man who is in heaven. Why does he say the son of man and not the son of God? Because here's what he doesn't want us to do. He doesn't want us to think that, okay, Jesus is divinity and he's in heaven and he's humanity and he's on earth. Jesus is divinity and humanity. He's God and man and he's one entity. And they are inseparable. And so the God-man, so, so while the Son of Man is on earth, but he is technically through his divinity and through his real, he's in heaven at that very moment. Fascinating, and he's on earth. Now, I'll give you something more about that. You, you, I'll blow your mind a little more with that later on. We come back and talk about that some more. And then his divine ministries. Jesus, he just said he was the redeemer. He's the savior. He's the propitiation for our, our sins. Like, he has these divine ministries, and one in particular is he is the creator and the sustainer. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. And then down at the end of this little passage, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
And we've mentioned this many times that scientists today cannot figure out why the proton and uh, why the neutron, if I got the right, why they don't just kind of implode. You know, they're there that they're like the electron. I don't understand it all. But, but science really doesn't either. There, there's no logical reason why the whole universe doesn't just repel and explode and why it holds together. Well, the Bible gives us the answer. Jesus Christ holds all things together. And this is the point that while Jesus is on earth and he's a man and he's on earth, he's up in heaven holding all things together. He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, and yeah, this is who the God-man is. And yeah, that is pretty wild. That is pretty amazing to stop and think about. Who is this God-man? And this proves, of course, why Jesus could never, at no point, stop being God. Because if Jesus at any point had stopped being God, then the world would have stopped being. Right? Because they are one. The God-man is one entity. And, yeah. I talked last week about the transcendence of God, how important it is to our worship, to understanding the incredible love God has for us. And so I wish we could have spent the whole morning just going through all of, of who Jesus is because when you see the transcendence of who he is, and there's so many more scriptures I just chunked out of the message because I didn't have time, but it just exalts God to the point and you're just amazed that he would empty himself of his glory, that he, he would empty himself and he would come to earth for you and me. It really uh, it's just fascinating. It really is fascinating. So, again, Jesus lived my life so that I could live his. And we're going to understand this more as we move into point two here. He lived my life so that I could live his. And this takes us then to, uh, uh, to a couple of questions we have to deal with, okay? See, while Jesus didn't set aside his divinity uh, and never stopped being God, we still have this tension to resolve, we're drawn back to, to verse 7 there, right? The kenosis theory, that Jesus emptied himself. So if he didn't you know, empty himself of his divinity, what did he empty himself of? And we're going to ask the what question, then we're going to ask the why question. Why did he choose to empty himself in the way that he did? So here's point number two this morning. When Jesus came to earth, he uh, set aside, how did I put that? He set aside his divine privileges and advantages. So he never set aside his divinity, but he did set aside his divine privileges and advantages so he could experience our life. I've used this illustration before. I was going to bring one up here. It's just like, it's the God card illustration with the credit card. And just imagine that, that Jesus has a card and on the card are all his divine attributes. He's omnipotent and he's omnipresent and, and, he's, and he's omniscient, he's all-knowing and all of those things are on the God card. And so as Jesus is going through life and he needs to do a miracle, he just whips out the God card and I'm all-powerful. Or I'm all-knowing. He whips out the God card and he can do it. Well, the problem with that is Jesus didn't just come to live his life, he came to live your life and my life. I don't have a God card. I can't, I don't have the power to do whatever I want. I don't have the, the ability to know all things. And so Jesus took on some of our limitations. And that I know is really difficult for people. But watch some of the verses today because it's really clear. And it is really fascinating, okay? It is really, really fascinating. Let me give you an illustration that God gave to me. So let's say you move into a new town. You go to this new town, I don't know, maybe it's one of those smart cities they wanted to divine, I don't know. But you live in this town and nobody drives a car. Because nobody ever leaves town. Everything's right in the town and so you've got a car. Uh, they, you can move to this town where everybody runs around on, you know, some kind of bi bicycle. 
and you move in there and you actually drive a, a red hot sports car. It's electric. It's one of these new cars where the battery never wears out. It's like, it's got unlimited power and it goes like 200 miles an hour. It's this amazing car. And you move into town and everybody's like looking at you because you drive a car and they all go around on, he doesn't need a car here, you know. So anyway, it turns out that every June in this town they have the annual race and you can race around the 21 miles around town and you can race around in whatever they never stipulated. Everybody just has bikes. You can race around the town in your vehicle and everybody's getting a little nervous. It's like, well, hey, this guy's going to race around in his car and he's going to, you know, he's going to just wipe us up. And so as the, as the day approaches, you're like, what should I do? And so you, you pedal into the event that day on a bike like everybody else, and you run the race like everybody else, even though you could run around in a car and you could just lap everybody a hundred times. And everybody's kind of relieved when you do that. And it's kind of a picture, a little bit of Jesus, like Jesus came to earth to run the human race, and he didn't come to run the human race just to win it. He came to run the human race and experience it and to fulfill his exact mission, which wasn't to, to, to win a race, but to, to make it to the cross and offer his life as a sacrifice and set us free from sin and death and hell. And He's got his mission, and so he comes, and so he goes through life on a bike like you and me. And he, and he set aside some of those privileges and advantages that we didn't have so he could know what it was like to live your life. And I think people struggle with this. I said this last week, you know, when it comes to God's sovereignty, something God's sovereignty means he makes every decision. And if he doesn't make every decision, that diminishes his glory. And I think some people think, well, if Jesus, like, set aside some of his privileges and advantages and wasn't all-knowing and wasn't all-powerful, that kind of like diminishes his glory. No, I don't think so. To me, it's just the exact opposite, to see one who had so much, but he decided, you know, I'm just gonna ride around on a bike. I'm just gonna limit myself like the rest of the people around me. I'm gonna experience their life. And so Jesus set aside like his omnipresence to run the human race. He did that. In many ways, this is the easiest one to understand because Jesus was only in one place at a time, right? Jesus kind of was, he was here in his body and he was here or he was there like you and me. He was limited. And now this is what's really mind-blowing because understand that in heaven, the God-man in heaven is omnipresent. He's up in heaven and he's omnipotent and he's up there. If he's not doing what he's doing up there, the world would stop existing. But on earth as a man, the God man here on earth has constrained himself and limited his omnipresence. Do you remember, remember after Jesus resurrected from the grave when he would just walk through doors and he would just walk into rooms, right? Remember that? How many remember that? Did Jesus do that? I looked it up in the Bible this week. Maybe you'll find it and maybe I'm wrong. I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't find anywhere where he, where he walked or passed through a wall. But you know what I did find? He appeared. He just appeared. He just appeared in this room and he appeared on this road and he appeared here and he appeared there. It's kind of like a picture of his omnipresence in that Jesus could just appear wherever he wanted. He didn't do that before. Like before, wherever he went, he walked, he walked, he walked. And in fact, sometimes people thought he got there late. Right? Remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus is dead and you got here late. Jesus didn't just appear wherever he wanted because he had limited himself. But after the resurrection, man, he was wherever he wanted to be, showed up wherever he wanted to be, and yeah. He also limited his omnipotence. 
His, th- this is his ability to be all-powerful. Now, immediately, people always struggle with this because they're like, wait a minute. He walked around the earth and he did all kinds of miracles, right? He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he walked on water, he stilled the storm. What do you mean he's not all-powerful? How, how did he do all those things? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible tells us how he does those things repeatedly and it's really, really, really amazing. Go to Acts chapter 10. Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 10. They, of course, crucified the Lord here. But he's preaching and talking about Jesus. Listen to what he says. Okay, how did Jesus do his miracles? As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened through all Judea, being from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Logical question. If Jesus is all powerful, if he's omnipotent, if he hasn't set that aside, why is he being anointed with power? Why is he being given the Holy Spirit when, you know, in a sense they're already one? It's like, what's going on here? And it says he did these miracles for God was with him. I think that is really fascinating. And so we see right at the, at the outset how Jesus did his ministry. This is when he was baptized at the start of his ministry. And this is really, really, really significant. Let me give you another one in Luke chapter 5. Watch this in Luke chapter 5. So while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He calls Jesus Lord. Capitalized. It's in every translation that way. He's referring to Jesus as Lord. He is God. Jesus is God. But then look at this. Five verses later. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Like, the power of God was with him. It wasn't his own power, but the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And this just reminds me again of Acts 10.41. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. How was he doing his ministry? How was he doing these miracles? And there's this reality that emerges here, right? There's this reality. I didn't put it on the screen here, but there's this thing that Jesus repeatedly is operating under the authority of the Father and through the power of the Spirit. That's how Jesus did what he did. He was under the Father's authority. The Father gave him the authority, and then he operated under the power of the Spirit. Right? And so that's really important to understand. Jesus could do what the Father gave him the authority to do. That's you and me today. We can do what God gives us the authority to do, and God isn't doing some things today that he used to do. Now, let me, get, let me take you to one more example. Let me, let me prove this with one of God's most amazing miracles, Jesus' most amazing miracles. This is the miracle when they're traveling across the lake in the boat. Okay, watch this. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? How did Jesus calm this storm? Well, we would naturally say, well, he's God. 
But if he set aside his, his omnipotence, if he set aside those divine, how did he calm this storm? Through the authority of the Father and through the, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you might doubt me. There's something, there's something in there. You might have caught it, you might not have. Before Jesus calmed the storm, what was he doing? He was sleeping. Watch this. Want a great paradox? Uh, Psalm 123, 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, the le- behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Jesus is God. God doesn't sleep, but Jesus is sleeping. And why is Jesus sleeping? Why is he tired if he's all-powerful? When he meets the woman at the well in John 4, he stops there to get a drink of water. Why? Because he was weary. Why is he weary? He's all-powerful. Except that he has set aside his God card with all his power and said, I'm going to rely on the Holy Spirit and I'm going to rely on the Father just like you do. I'm going to live your life so you can then in turn live my life. I just think that is so fascinating, so incredibly fascinating. In fact, something else Jesus did a lot of, you know Jesus prayed a lot? Why do you pray? If he's all-powerful, if he's all-knowing, if he, why does he pray all the time? Because we need to pray. And he didn't just pray so we would learn. how. He prayed because he needed to pray. Before he went to the cross, he prayed intensely. It's like he needed to pray because he needed the authority of the Father, the knowledge, the wisdom of the Father. He needed the power of the Spirit in his life. And so then Jesus set aside his omniscience to run the human race. Yeah, Jesus did not know absolutely everything. He had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke to him. But yeah, look at this verse. So Luke, Luke, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 2. I got the, the typo on my thing here. It's Luke, yeah, Luke 2.52. Shortly after his birth, about the time he's 12 years old, it tells us this, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew intellectually, he grew physically, he grew spiritually with God and relationally with man. And how is Jesus increasing in wisdom if he is all-knowing? If he just divinely knows all things, how is he increasing in wisdom? Because he doesn't. Because he grew intellectually just like you and I. He, had, uh, he grew in his knowledge and in his intellect. In fact, a couple of other examples. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. The Father taught Jesus what to say because he didn't know. He taught him what to say. He taught him what he needed to say, just like he teaches us what we need to say and how we need to handle relationships. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus spoke what God told him to speak. He learned from the father. I'll give you one more one, one more example. Watch this. Mark 11, 12. And on the next day, They having gone out from Bethany, he was hungry. And having seen a fig tree afar, having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he will find anything on it. And having come to it, he found nothing except leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And I think he curses the fig tree then. But but do you understand? Like he looked at that tree, he's like, he didn't know what was on that tree. He didn't have all divine, no, he had to go over and look. Because he was living your life so that you and I could then Live his. I get the pushback. Sometimes people say, yeah, but there's those times in the scriptures when he would like know what someone was thinking, right? 
Like, like he would heal somebody on the Sabbath and then, and then, he, and then he, he would call out the religious leaders for being hypocrites, you know? It's like, how do you know that? I'll tell you how he knew that, spiritual discernment. He could heal somebody and then he could look in the eyes of those religious leaders and think, they didn't like me healing this guy on Saturday, you know? <laughs> they don't like that. He, spiritual discernment. There's, there's a passage that says, um, yeah, I put it on here. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he humbled himself, uh, about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Well, I can pick up the Bible and tell you what's in man. I can tell you what's in the heart of an unbeliever, that they have a wicked, evil, deceitful heart, that they are lost, that they are searching, that they have gone. I can tell you, I mean, a lot of this is just spiritual discernment. But when it comes to actually literally knowing like something, like, yeah, there's so many examples when Jesus didn't have. It's not that he's not all-knowing. It's not that he's not all-powerful. It's not that he's not all-present. It's just he willingly chose to not use those as he walked this world. How do you train a 20-something medical student to feel genuine empathy for senior citizens? Enter the age man suit, consisting of ear protectors that stifle hearing, a yellow visor that blurs eyesight and makes it hard to distinguish colors, knee and elbow pads which stiffen the joints, stiffen the joints, a Kevlar jacket-style vest which presses uncomfortably against my chest, and padded gloves, the age man suit, which weighs around 10K, has been custom-made to stimulate the physical consequences of old age. Dr. Rachel Eckhart from Berlin, Germany, helped strap the suit onto the med students as she tells them, welcome to old age, she says. My aim is to turn young, energetic people into slow, creaking beings, temporarily at least. That way they will, I hope, develop a feeling for what it's like to be old. Eckhart argues that there is a huge disconnect between large sections of the medical profession and their elderly patients, as well as a desperate lack of doctors willing to go into geriatric medicine. Rather than a PowerPoint presentation, this is the best way of giving them a real idea of what it's like to be old, she says. And only once we have their empathy can we really begin to win students uh, around to becoming interested in old people as patients. Can we understand that this is what Jesus did for all of us? He put on our suit with all of our limitations so that we could then put on Christ and exceed all of our expectations just as he empathizes and sympathizes with us we as his body can now better empathize and sympathize with this world yes jesus lived my life so that i could live his and that brings us then to the why question as we kind of bring this in this morning and our third step So why did Jesus choose to do this? Why did he choose to empty himself of his divine privileges and advantages and and approach life like you and me? Why did he do that? Here's the answer to the why question. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ was made in every respect like you, like a human. Just didn't have the sin. He took on the likeness, it says, of human flesh. I think it says it took on the likeness of sinful flesh, but he didn't have the sin. He never sinned. 
And that's what sets him apart. But he was made in every respect like you and me. Do you ever stop and think about Jesus as your brother? Like God is our father, Jesus is our brother, the Holy Spirit is our friend. Jesus is our brother. And he was made in every respect like you and me. And Jesus Christ came to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins and be the, uh, the substitutionary atonement. And he came to give us victory over the cross and, and death and hell and sin and all of that. But he also came to live our life, to experience our life so that we could then experience his life. And the third step is simply this. Jesus then teaches us how to process and live life. He teaches us how we can process and live life. And just like that, like that mind of Christ versus kind of like that hinge verse, like here's all this deep theology of what Jesus gave up, what Jesus surrendered. In fact, you want to talk about Jesus setting aside his divine privileges, a way that's more relatable to you and me is he surrendered his rights. His right to be all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present. He, he surrendered those rights. And, and as we learn how he surrendered his rights, that helps us then come over here and consider others more excellent, and honor others more than we honor ourselves, to live the life that Jesus lived. He will help us process life because we have the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let me give you three benchmarks as we close today. Three benchmarks of what Jesus shows us about how we can process and live life then. Like, yeah, what are the three benchmarks? Well, we've mentioned two of them already. We'll bring them up here again. Living under the, the authority of the Father. Paul says, in my relationships, right, I need to live under the authority of the Father. We saw it last week. The Lord is my shepherd and the shepherd is my Lord. And when I, make, when, when I live under the authority of the Father, man, my life is going to go so much better. This is repeatedly, we said it today in so many scriptures, Jesus said, I, I'm under the authority of the Father. We need to see our lives in that same way. In Ephesians, Paul talks about this idea of submission, right? He tells wives to submit to their husbands. That's not a popular verse today, right? At the same time, he tells men, you know, you need to love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. But down in Ephesians 5.21, he kind of summarizes everything with this statement. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like the, at the heart of all our relationships, there's just a submission that we just submit to one another. How do I consider you more excellent than myself? How do I honor you more than you can, before you can honor me? How, how, how do I have that attitude? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's just this submission. And I, I lay down my rights. I surrender my rights just as jesus surrendered his i surrender my uh, think about this right most of our arguments and and friction in our relationships is because we just won't surrender our rights for instance it's my right to be heard it's my right to be angry it's my right to be noticed it's my right to fight back it's my right to defend myself it's my right to be right come on right we're having an argument and like i'm right and i'm gonna fight until you know that i'm right First Peter 1, for to you, to this you have been called because, you, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we're amazed by that, right? Like Jesus went to the cross, he didn't defend himself, he didn't fight back, he just let them, you know, beat him, and he didn't say anything. And it's like, why does that amaze us? 
He came to earth and surrendered the glory of heaven. He surrendered his omniscience and his omnipotence and his, uh, all of that before he ever went to the cross. That's the reality. Peter says Jesus was an example of how to process life and how to surrender our rights. Jesus was an expert at putting others first, building others up, and counting others more important, and he did that on the cross. When he went to the cross, you were more significant than he was. You were more important than he was. That's why he suffered the way he did on the cross. And here's the thing. Jesus did that on the cross for his enemies. We were all his enemies. Add that to the layer. So ask God this morning, living under the Father's authority, what rights can I surrender for your glory? What rights do I need to surrender in my relationships? And then second benchmark is that he lived through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, Paul prays that the Ephesians would have the spiritual eyesight opened so they would know the power of the resurrection pulsating through their veins. Like when you were saved and Christ came to live in you, all the, the power of Jesus is in you. The power of the resurrection is in you. Now, it's under the authority of the Father, right? Some people apply this and think, we can just go out and heal the whole world. You know, we have all these, like Jesus, no, that's not the way it works. We're under the authority of the Father and what does God want to do and how does God want to use us today? But we have the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. What is this power? It's the power to love our enemies. It's the power to serve our neighbors, to forgive our wrongs, to look past our injustices, to honor absolutely anyone, to bring out the best in others, to count others as more excellent than ourselves. It's the power to put others first, to surrender my rights, to think like Jesus, and to live his life. Yes, I have the power to live his life. He came and lived my life so that I could live his. Do you, do you understand how that fits in? I love this quote from Joni Erickson Tata. Just think, every promise God has ever made find its, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. God doesn't just give us grace. He gives us Jesus, the Lord of grace. If it's peace, it's found only in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Even life itself is found in the resurrection and life. Christianity isn't all that complicated. It's Jesus. Yeah, it's Jesus. It is that amazingly Simple. And finally, the third and final benchmark is living out my identity in Christ, which comes up once a month in my messages, right? But do you know Jesus shows us this? Do you understand how Jesus shows us this? This is something that probably escapes a lot of us. What does it mean, living out my identity in Christ? Well, it means that it's knowing who we are and why we are here. Like, if you want to live the life Christ lived, you need to know who you are and you need to know why you are here. And Jesus, that's the reality. Jesus knew why he was here and he knew who he was. Did you ever think about the reality? Like how did Jesus know he was the Messiah? Did Jesus like give, give birth and like he comes out of the womb and two minutes later he looks up and he says, hey God, I'm here. I'm ready for my mission. No, that's not how it worked. We, we read it. He grew in wisdom. It, it tells us later he learned obedience through his suffering. He learned obedience. He was made perfect through his suffering. How was that? Because he had a character that was being redefined even as ours is. He was holy and perfect and spotless lamb of God, but he was a man living our life. And so I'd say about nine or 10 or 11, Mary sits him down one day and Mary says, Jesus, I gotta tell you something. You're a very special boy. You know, Joseph is not actually your biological father. And you may at times, you might take some, some, some people might, 
poke at you and, and, and um, may, might snipe at you and say you're an illegitimate child. And uh, that actually happened in John 8, if you didn't know. When he's an adult, they come to Jesus and they're like, you're an illegitimate child. And they were making reference to how he was born. But she would sit down and tell him, you were conceived by God. You were born of a virgin and I don't understand it all. And so Jesus would take that in and then Jesus is studying the law and the prophets like any good Jewish boy. He's memorizing the Torah like all the other Jewish boys. And at some point, Jesus puts it all together and Jesus is like, I'm the Messiah. That's me. I'm the one who was born of a virgin. I'm the Messiah. I'm, wow. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit played a role in helping him understand that as he grew into that. What's really fascinating is that what, what do we know about Jesus? Well, we know he was born, and then we know that he had his earthly ministry, right? And the only thing we know about Jesus outside of his birth and then his earthly ministry is there's just one little instance tucked away in Luke chapter 2. Just one little instant. Watch this. So after, remember, they leave him at the temple. After three days, they found him. So they, they've left, traveled today. Mary and Joseph realize, hey, we don't have Jesus. And uh, a common thing that could happen in that day, the way they traveled. But anyway, so they go back to the temple to find Jesus. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's asking questions. He's answering questions. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? King James says, I must be about my father's business. Why is this the only story of Jesus' childhood that's contained in the Bible? Because I think this is the moment sometime right around here when Jesus discovered who he was and why he was here. He said it. I have to be about my father. Like he knew now, oh, I have a heavenly father. And I, I'm about his business. And the rest of his life would be about that. And he would take on his earthly ministry at age 30. But the point is, the benchmark here is that how do we live life? We have to know who we are in Christ and we have to know why we are here live under the Father's authority, live through the power of the Holy Spirit, and live out your identity in Christ. The thing is, you won't truly know your identity until you receive Christ. You won't truly find yourself and or purpose in your identity until you lose yourself, which is one of, another one of the great paradoxes Jesus said, you gotta lose your life to find it. Once you come to Christ, though, you can then find your identity in Christ and you can know your deepest purpose. You can know why God created you. Part of your purpose is to build others up, to put others first, to honor others more than self, and to count them more excellent than yourself. Part of your person is to, part of your purpose is to be that brand ambassador we have talked about, helping others to likewise find their truest identity and purpose in Christ. And it all starts with a simple mindset when we learn to think like Jesus did. When we learn to surrender our rights to the glory of the Father, it really is this simple. Jesus lived your life so he could teach you how to live his. And it all starts when we learn to think like him. Let's pray. Wow. You are a transcendent God. You are all of those things and yet you surrendered so much to come to earth and you lived my life. Yeah, you lived yours and you carried out your mission, but you lived my life. 
You lived everyone. In, in this room, you lived our life. You experienced our life. And you did that so that we could then know how to live yours. You show us how to process life. Like how did Jesus handle life in this world? And you show us so we can then take the life of Christ in us and we can live it out for the world under the Father's authority, through the Holy Spirit's power and and just knowing who we are in you and knowing our purpose. Lord, I pray these words will resonate with us today. And Lord, I pray there's some questions uh, that we can all look at in the notes today. Is there a person that I need to honor more than myself? Is there a relationship where I need to count somebody more excellent than me? And how can I be more deliberate? How can I be more deliberate in honoring and showing uh, honor to other people and counting others people more excellent than myself? How can I be more deliberate in that? Make us aware. You are so deliberate. You came to earth, set aside your divine privileges and advantages and went to the cross all so that we can know how to live your life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.